Hello, everyone. This is Mike Epstein, and welcome to Speaking of the Arts. My guest today is Chris Gruitz. Chris is currently the Executive Director of Interlochen Presents, the Programming and Production Division of Interlochen Center for the Arts. In this role, Chris oversees all presentations and webcasting, producing over 600 events per year across all arts disciplines, including the Interlochen Arts Festival, one of the largest and most comprehensive summer arts festivals in the country. Among some of his more innovative programming initiatives, Chris has created Composers in Context, a three-day festival exploring specific composers and their influences, Aaron Copeland, The World of an Uncommon Man, a multidisciplinary summer festival celebrating the legacy of Aaron Copeland, and the annual Winter Lockin Arts Day, a free community-wide celebration and open house on Interlochen's campus. Prior to Interlochen, Chris served as director of e-strategy at Carnegie Hall, where he created the institution's first digital strategy, guiding all content and messaging across digital platforms while significantly in increasing audience engagement and online revenue through original web content. At Carnegie, Chris also developed the hall's first mobile application, including a walking tour based on Tchaikovsky's visit to New York City for the opening of Carnegie Hall in 1891. Chris, thanks so much for being here. It's great to have you on. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me. You're a Michigan State alumni, correct? I am. I went there for undergrad. That's right. Yeah. Well, that was some game a few weeks ago against the Wolverines. <laughs> yeah. And my wife actually went to undergrad at University of Michigan, so we're a house divided. It was a tense day. Oh, wow. It's funny you should say that. My <laughs> wife went to the University of Michigan. I went to Indiana University, but, you know, we had a lot of people over for that game. And, um, yeah. <laughs> It was an awkward ending. <laughs> yes, it was. Unless you went to good ending. State, it was quite the ending for you guys. <laughs> yeah, it was a great ending. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, as I mentioned in your uh, in the bio introduction, you've got a really unique background, Chris, with your experiences at Carnegie Hall, leading the digital strategy initiative, and now as the person in charge of programming at Interlochen. Before we get to all that, um, can you give us a little background? How did you be? How did you first get involved with the arts? Well, I always was involved in music, you know, from a young age, probably like a lot of my colleagues, uh, and mostly through voice, through choir, and through uh, singing. And <clears throat> I was an undergraduate voice major at Michigan State, but they had an arts administration degree that was pretty new at the time. And I had this realization actually at Hill Auditorium in Ann Arbor when I was younger at a big kind of band concert that I went to, that there was a big production arm uh, behind the concert that I was experiencing. And I must have been in my early teens. And so I pretty early on latched onto the idea that you could be uh, executive producer or executive director um, of a venue or of an institution. I really liked that idea. I liked organizing things. I liked being behind the scenes. And so I, I went into arts administration at Michigan State University in their undergraduate program. The nice thing about the program is that you still had to have a fine art concentration. So you had to be an a instrumental or a voice major in music, or you had to be a visual art major. So you really had a combination of uh, fine arts training, but then a mix of business and communications courses along with it. And it was a fairly new program at the time. Uh, there wasn't a lot of other programs like it. Um, and then I did an internship uh, at the Metropolitan Opera Guild in New York uh, my senior year of undergrad. And that really changed things for me. I saw a big cultural institution and kind of what it took to put that together, what education programs were like, uh, what we're working and living in New York City were like. Um, I was lucky enough to have family there that I could stay with. Um, so I really kind of got into a big cultural institution from an early age via a semester-long internship. And then that combined with my 
undergrad study and my work in the music department, um, you know, in performing and rehearsals and working with musicians, um, just really had me interested in this specific area. So I think I just have always known that I've wanted to go into uh, arts management uh, from a young age, so it's kind of lucky that way, I think. Sure, absolutely. So let's kind of fast forward then. So you end up in New York. Um, can you maybe talk about uh, your role at Carnegie Hall as director of eStrategy. What were some of the biggest challenges you faced? Well, you know, I was at Carnegie the first time in artistic programming and production. So I had been at Carnegie already for about four years. And prior to that, I was at the Seattle Symphony. So I really started in the business, um, in the orchestra business, and then <clears throat> went from Seattle to Carnegie Hall, um, kind of coinciding with the time that they opened Zankel Hall, and they really needed to bring on more staff to manage a, a wider range of concerts. So I had been at Carnegie Hall and knew that environment. I had worked very closely with artists and with the senior artistic programmers there, so I kind of knew their approach to programming. When they decided to build a, um, a digital department, I had been working for a startup in London, which is one of the first, you know, in the newest and first startups, um, web startups for classical music online around social networking. And my dissertation in business school was on digital strategy in classical music. I went to business school at Edinburgh University in Scotland. And so I kind of had been in for several years in this mix of digital music, but over in the UK. And like a lot of institutions, Carnegie was really looking to take some big steps forward uh, with digital. And really what that meant was looking at everything across marketing, across fundraising, and across content, really, um, online, and what they were going to do with content, whether it be video content or social media content or blog content. And so the woman I worked for, Naomi Grable, who's still there and one of the best in the business, I think, she really built this team and said, we want to bring people in uh, who are going to understand uh, programming content and understand what we're trying to tell audiences about the concerts we're presenting, but then also really understand that we want to leverage this content for audience engagement, for marketing, and for fundraising. And so it was a really exciting opportunity to kind of come into that and to get to build a team and really create all the mechanisms and process around um, digital operations there, which they had really not had uh, prior to me being there. It had sat in IT and marketing a bit, and it was very uh, small staff. So it was great. It was challenging in that this was a really big uh, – there was a really big educational factor internally. I had to spend a lot of time working with other departments to educate them on what digital meant, what the Internet meant in terms of, you know, Carnegie Hall's role, Carnegie Hall's space um, digitally, and that this was really – quickly becoming, it has obviously become the biggest medium for communication with our audiences. And that audiences weren't just looking for a sales message necessarily, they're actually looking for programming online in addition to what they saw um, on the stages. That's awesome. And it, okay, so in the intro I mentioned the uh, mobile app, which all I know about it was that it was uh, sort of this walking tour based on Tchaikovsky's visit um, for the when you came to New York for the opening of Carnegie Hall, can you talk about the app and, and how did that come about? Sure, I'm glad you asked me about that because I just um, had a meeting with our head of dance here at Interlochen and he actually used the app and he, we just he loves Tchaikovsky and we just actually realized he had downloaded the app and used it in New York and was laughing when he found out it was me that designed it. <laughs> we, we were kind of laughing. It was kind of nice to meet uh, somebody, an end user of that application. Um, 
Well, we were at that time, our, you know, Claude Gillinson and our really, really talented programming team, uh, we were focused on the 100, 120th anniversary of Carnegie Hall. And one of the programming thrusts was looking at the history of uh, Carnegie's place in New York City at the time. So in the 1890s, what was New York like? What was America like? What was Carnegie Hall's role uh, when it opened in, in that mix? And so we really needed to find something that would engage audiences in that programming. Uh, we were partnering with some other institutions in the city like the New York Historical Society and there were some lectures and talks around uh, Carnegie Hall's history. And I looked at the opening of the hall. Tchaikovsky came over from Europe, uh, he came over from Paris um, to open Carnegie Hall in 1891. There's a very big festival at the time. And at this time, New York was really a backwater city culturally. It was really growing. It wasn't really in the mix, um, you know, in the way that European uh, capitals were. And so they brought Tchaikovsky over. They paid him a very uh, big amount of money to come open Carnegie Hall and conduct. And he kept a diary the whole time he was in New York City. And it was really fascinating to read this diary to find out all the places he went in New York, where he had dinner, where he was at social events, his impressions of the city, the hotel he stayed at, um, the fact that he could ring a bell and somebody in the hotel would come running up and ask him what he needed. He was really fascinated with that, for instance. So I read through the diaries. I, did, I studied them a lot. And then I went around to about 19 different uh, places in the city. Um, some of those were st buildings were still in existence where he spent time and stayed. Others had been raised, obviously, and there was new buildings there. But we created kind of a walk tour uh, through New York City with some historical information on each of those sites about Tchaikovsky's experience there. And then you could actually stand in a specific spot and transition the photo to see what it looked like in the 1890s during Tchaikovsky's time. So it was a really hard project, but a really interesting project, and one that kind of gave a lot of added context and spin on the, the programming, the live program that we were doing at Carnegie Hall. And it, it ended up being a, a real success. I was really happy with it. That's so great. So. Okay, so what advice then would you have for people listening who who might be interested in developing an app for their own organization? I mean, if it's regardless of if it's a presenter, or, you know, even an artist, or you know, myself at an agency. I mean, what, I I don't have a technical background in that. Where do I start? Well, I think, you know, the thing to think about is what are you trying to achieve with an app? Is it really, are you trying to address, you know, mobile internet users and trying to get them to do a specific action? Or are you just looking kind of for general marketing and promotional, um, you know, is it a general marketing and promotional endeavor? And I think once you answer that question, that can kind of put you on the path to what you want to do. There are so many ways now to just create a really simple and easy-to-use mobile site that kind of functions as an application, rather than going down the path of building an entire separate, you know, entirely separate mobile app, uh, which is very time-consuming and expensive and has kind of a short shelf life. You know, applications don't necessarily last for that long. And what they find is that most people use applications. You probably know this in your own life. They use it for a specific task, whether it's banking or movie tickets or directions. Most people aren't engaging with um, content apps over the long term. They're kind of doing that uh, in their internet browser or in different ways. So it, you, I think you have to answer that fundamental question and then really look to what can I do with a mobile site of my existing website, maybe tailored for the mobile user, and then thinking about the content around that um, that might engage them. So in your case, obviously, uh, promoting artists, what type of music or video content would work on a mobile site, or how could you get that to mobile users in the best way? These are great things to think about. Um, I'm going to have to make a note to call you when we're done here and take some follow-up <laughs> questions because sure you got thing. me thinking about some seriously important things that uh, I think could make a big difference. So I'm really glad that you're mentioning all that. 
Um, okay, so to sort of get back on track here, so let's talk about Interlochen. It's a very unique place situated outside Traverse City. The organization started as a summer camp in the late 20s. It expanded uh, in the 60s, is that correct, when it opened a boarding school for high school students? That's right, yep. Was it hard? I know that you're um, – are you originally from Michigan or you just went to Michigan State? I'm originally from Michigan. I'm originally ah, from Detroit. Because one of the questions I was going to ask is, was it, was it sort of hard for you to transition from your role at Carnegie Hall in New York going back to living in uh, rural Michigan, but I guess if you were from there, you're somewhat used to that. <laughs> a little bit, yeah. I yeah. mean, moving from Brooklyn to northern Michigan is certainly a uh, culture shock. Um, I call it reverse culture shock. Um, I'm from the state of Michigan, but I'm from southeastern Michigan, which is – and I haven't – I hadn't lived in the state for a very long time. So um, northern Michigan is very different from the rest of the state. So, yeah, it was, it was definitely a big change. Yeah, I'm sure – um, okay, so one thing I wanted to focus on as we kind of get into what you're doing there now is in the intro, I mentioned that you oversee all webcasting. What is webcasting for those who don't know? Sure. So webcasting just means that we are um, recording, video recording via HD cameras in the house, different performances at Interlochen. And actually, Interlochen was one of the first institutions to do this in a, in a big way um, because we had so much demand from uh, parents of students and then also from our audiences who are here during the year and then in the summer. Um, and so what we do is we put together a range of webcasts, over 100 per year, across student, faculty, and guest artist performances. And we have a crew of um, you know, five people or so in conjunction with our IT department. We use the platform Livestream, and so we live stream out uh, concerts um, on our website and also on the Livestream platform. And then we put those performances, many of those performances, on YouTube if we have the rights to do so. And then we kind of promote that content out via social media. We also do a lot of broadcasting because, of course, we have Interlochen Public Radio. Uh, we're one of the founding NPR stations from the 1960s. So we have a full-time classical and a full-time news uh, radio station all throughout Northern Michigan. And so we audio broadcast a lot of concerts as well. So we're kind of doing broadcasting and webcasting. The webcasting happened really over the last five or six years. It's kind of something Interlochen invested in early on. Um, and we kind of try to offer a range of performances that people might find interesting um, from our programming. And, you know, there's a big parent audience in Interlochen. So the boarding school, people are sending their kids here from all over the world. And then during the camp, there's over 2,500 kids from all over the world here. So people want to see if they can't be here in person, they want to see um, what their kids are doing. Also, because we are a little bit isolated, we're four and a half hours from Detroit and five hours north of Chicago, we're in a unique setting, a beautiful setting, uh, but one that's a little bit isolated. So we try to webcast out and you know push out a lot of the programming and content uh, for people who can't physically be here. So we have a very big alumni community. We have a very big community of people who are here seasonally in the summer. It's a big resort destination. So people who come here in the summer and enjoy our programming during their vacations who want to see what's going on during the rest of the year. Yeah. Um, okay, so do patrons have to pay to watch online if it was a show that um, had a ticket price that was being presented, or how does that work? They don't have to pay. Um, so they can really watch that free of charge, um, depending on what it is. Um, if it's a very high-profile you know, artist, for instance, we know that we'll have a critical mass in the house. So, for instance, Martha Graham Dance Company was here this uh, summer as part of our Copeland Festival. They were doing Appalachian Spring and some other new works. That concert sold out pretty quickly. Um, so a 1,000 seats were gone. People were trying to get into that performance. So we webcast it for those who couldn't attend in person. Um, 
and in that case, we didn't leave the webcast up. We didn't archive it because of uh, rights issues for the dancers and the unions. So that was a kind of a one-time only live event. Um, and so you don't need to pay for that performance, but <clears throat> what we're really finding is it's not really cannibalizing sales. We're not doing that for all of our guest artist performances. Obviously, not every guest artist is interested in doing that. Um, but we are finding that it's a really nice complement to what we're doing uh, the rest of the year and, and for most of our live programming, you know, not unlike uh, what the sports industry does, you know, um, when people started broadcasting baseball games, for instance, everybody said, well, nobody's going to go to see baseball games, and that's still obviously a pretty viable business. Um, and I think it just depends on the institution. I think we're not, you know, obviously the Met where we're broadcasting, you know, live and HD uh, full-length operas uh, for $20 in theaters across the world. It's on a different scale, obviously. But for our audiences um, and for our um, parent audiences, it's it's working very well. It's really great to hear. So if I was a presenter listening and I, and I was interested in learning more about how to set this up for my own venue, what are some of the basic things I need to be aware of and, and where would I start? You mentioned the service that you guys are using. Can you maybe say it again and then just again some of the other components that I would need to be aware of. Sure. So we use the platform Livestream. Livestream is one of the largest um, kind of tools that um, people can use to webcast. It's a, it's a whole system you bring in that you connect with cameras um, to capture a live performance and then stream out over the internet. And we set that up with uh, about four HD cameras that our production crew uses, and they, they had some specific training in camera work. And um, my assistant director serves as a director for those uh, productions it, that sometimes alternates between positions on our production team. And then our IT department partners with us to make sure that the, the conduit and that the streaming is happening uh, with the live stream platform um, so that that webcast is going out seamlessly. And then we have to add in a lot of content around uh, the program. So we'll put in titles of pieces, titles of movements, uh, links to program notes. Um, we're planning for next year to do some hosted webcasts where we have a host interviewing the artist a little bit more in a kind of formal way, a formal presentation way. So it's really a, a cross-departmental effort across you know programming production um, IT um, and then the marketing department to kind of look at all of the pieces going into uh, that performance and that production but the the platform that we're using is live stream YouTube also offers this um, they also offer streaming and there's a lot of different companies that um, people can use now to, to web stream it's actually so accessible now because of, of where technology is, has gone yeah, and I would imagine it's just going to become more ubiquitous and more – I would imagine more venues are going to start to do this. A lot are, but I'm glad that you're describing some of the components that go into it because I, I would imagine, too, that having all that content available really helps your marketing. <laughs> It does, and I think people have to realize, you know, you need a mechanism in the infrastructure. It's one thing to capture the content, but then you really need to spend time on archiving, tagging, and kind of editing the content and getting the content everywhere it needs to be. And that's a humongous job that a lot of institutions haven't been able to resource yet. But it is great for marketing. It is great to pull people in. You can use it in a lot of ways. You can use it as a great repository for people who want to learn more about your institution. You can use it in specific uh, marketing and promotional um, outreach. So if it's an email or, you know, if it's an uh, uh, online ad, for instance, that you're trying to do something for recruitment. So it's a great tool. I think it also is a great tool for students because we are an educational institution. We're trying to always give students as much um, experience and also a really great way archivally to look back 
and see what their performance is like and how they can review that performance. A lot of guest artists say to us that they love doing it because they know that there's only a finite audience in the actual hall and they're going to reach a much bigger audience um, uh, you know, online. And typically what we find, and I think most, most places who do this find, is that the big audience doesn't really happen on the actual event. It's not really a live event only thing. It really happens in aggregate over time. So if you capture a performance and some people are there watching it live, you might have several hundred, then over time you're getting into the thousands of people who have been able to view that performance. And so that's a really fantastic thing, I think, for our industry in that we're able to capture those performances and those performances can live on um, under the right circumstances for a long time. Absolutely, yeah. People can check them out when they're able to. Yeah, absolutely. Good point. Yep. Okay, cool. So let's transition now. Let's talk a little bit about your role as director and, in particular, how you approach programming. Is it a challenge to go from booking acts such as Cirque Mechanics who you've got on your current season to booking someone like Cheryl Crow for the Summer Arts Festival? <laughs> well, I I think it's a good question, Mike. I think, you know, I wear a lot of different hats, and this is part of what attracted me to the job. There's, you know, similar places um, across the country like Interlochen, but there's really not a lot of festivals that are, on the one hand, very serious places for classical music and jazz and dance and theater and film and, and writing, who are also doing a kind of commercial season as well in an auditorium of 4,000 seats. So I really wear two different hats. I'm working across a couple different areas of the performing arts and the music business. Um, on the one hand, I'm uh, you know booking concerts with people like Cheryl Crow or you know whoever it might be, um, you know OAR or Vince Gill. We do a lot with country music as well. Um, you know rock concerts. Uh, so that's a very different business than the performing arts. Um, and my background is primarily in the performing arts, but I think it's so exciting to be able to work with artists. And I think just working with great artists is really what motivates me and what I try to do. I think we really at Interlock and try to look at high quality artists whenever possible and bring those artists to campus. And whether they're a really fine rock band or whether they're the Martha Graham Dance Company, we just want to make sure they're really good and that if possible, they're going to have impact with our students and also with um, the audiences who are who are seeing them, but it is really different. I mean, you have to. I go to some conferences that are completely commercially focused, and that's a very different conversation. And I go to other conferences, um, as you know, that are very different, where you the conversation really is about the artist and the program and the impact, um, and not the commercial kind of angle comes comes along much late, later. Well, it's just amazing hearing you describe all this because you're absolutely wearing a lot of different hats and sounds to me like you're, you have to find yourself to be very adaptable depending on the context and ultimately what you're looking for. It's, you know, people who aren't really aware of what uh, I think goes on behind the scenes in the, in the music industry and the booking aspect would be surprised at kind of what you're dealing with. So it's kind of interesting to hear you talk a little bit about that. Um, who, so who is the primary audience for interlocking arts festivals compared to your general fine arts season? Well, the arts festival is, you know, in the summer. It's the most beautiful time of year in northern Michigan. Northern Michigan is really a very, very popular resort area. Actually, a lot of people maybe on the East Coast or West Coast don't realize <clears throat> that it's actually an incredibly popular and one of the busiest spots in the United States in the summer. Um, so we have a lot of people from Chicago and Detroit. This is a really big second home market for the Detroit, metropolitan Detroit area and metropolitan Chicago area. It always has been. And those are two very, very big cities in the United States. 
And then we also have a big population from Texas. Uh, more and more Texans are coming up here in the summer uh, because of the weather. We have a traditionally big population from Cincinnati, like from the 19th century. People have come up to this area in the summer. Um, so there's just a range of people um, from the United States who come up here. We're getting more international tourists. There's big wine country up here. Traverse City is a big resort town. So there's a lot of people here in the summer uh, for vacation because of the water and the beaches and that type of thing. And then interlocking has been here since the 1920s. It's always presented concerts in the summer with the summer campers. It's really the first uh, summer arts camp in the country. It's the oldest and considered the best and really representing uh, a camp experience for kids ages 8 to 18 over all those disciplines. So you have this critical mass of tourists. You have a critical mass of students here and faculty and teachers in the summer. So it's a very busy place in the summer. Uh, we're looking at around 400 events over eight weeks. Um, so there's a team of 100 on the presentations team in my division who are producing all this. And we're producing in-house multiple theater productions with full sets and costumes and lighting design and audio design. Um, we're doing that every week and then we're also presenting very big shows you know like you know the person you mentioned before Cheryl Crow or Boss Gags or you know Martha Graham Dance Company. So we're doing a lot of different productions on individual nights we might have three to four different productions happening. So the type of audience we're drawing in is really a range of people who are interested in culture, who are interested in popular concerts, who are interested in uh, classical concerts. The core programming here has always been classical music. That's where Interlochen started. Um, but it always had dance and theater from the very beginning. And it then started having popular music really in the 60s in a big way. So we're really getting a range of consumers and the advantage that we have is that people can come see one thing but then they have such a range of options um, across the performing arts that they will typically try something else maybe that they haven't before. And our challenge is really to try to market to them and communicate to them that there's a lot of other things happening here. This is really a big reason why I focused on thematic programming over the first couple of years that I've been here to really tie together this multidisciplinary environment. Interlock is one of those unique places where you can really make a big artistic statement and a big programming statement. And I think institutions really kind of have a responsibility to ask some bigger questions and to try to make some broader points um, than just putting on artist after artist every night. And so that's why what we're trying to really do with some of this thematic programming, for instance, with Aaron Copeland. That's a perfect segue. I was just going to ask, can you talk a little bit about the festival that you produced this year and you know, what was the Aaron Copeland Festival? How did it come about? So Aaron Copeland visited Interlochen in 1967 and in 1970 and we recorded his, um, he gave two speeches and we recorded his speeches and his presentation. He performed with some of the students. Um, he did a lot of activity here. And he really loved Interlochen and he, he talked about it in a really interesting way as a uniquely American place, which I think is right. So it was 20, this 2015 is 25 years on since he passed away. So we wanted to commemorate that. We also wanted to look back to his time at Interlochen because he had such a big impact when he visited. So we really wanted to present a festival that captured the world of Aaron Copeland, what was going on when he was really in his heyday, you know, coming up from the 1920s, studying in Paris, all the way through the 80s when he was really kind of the, you know, the elder statesman of American music. And he's such an important artist for America. He has such a unique um, artistic perspective, and he was such a very fine composer, um, composing such complex, beautiful music that we felt is really important to do something around him. So we really looked at a multidisciplinary approach. We wanted to feature dance in a big way because he was such a big composer for dance and such a popular composer for dance. And then incidentally, uh, the Martha Graham 
dance company, the artistic direct, director, Jana Elber, is an alum of Interlochen, and she danced for Copeland when he visited the campus. So she worked with us uh, to bring the Martha Graham Dance Company here. We worked with the Emerson String Quartet to come up with a Copeland-inspired uh, program of chamber music. And then we also worked with our faculty who are here during the summer to come up with a series of chamber evenings that really looked at Copeland in context, looked at Copeland's music and other composers from his era and other composers that he would have been influenced by. So it's really a campus-wide event. We had a series of lectures, uh, we had a series of films, so different films that he composed the soundtrack for, The Red Pony, um, you know, uh, just different films that he was involved in, some that he was um, uh, nominated for the Academy Award and won the Academy Award, so Our Town, the movie, the original 1949 version. A lot of different multidisciplinary um, activities that represented Copeland really more as an artist, not just a composer. Obviously, he was a composer, but really as a unique American artist. Um, and it was a huge success for us. I think we had a lot of feedback from audiences saying, you know, we're so excited Interlochen is doing this. It's one of these immersive environments where you come to the campus and you can kind of see a range of performance across all of these disciplines. And it's very hard to do that other places. There's a lot of festivals that are music festivals or, you know, dance festivals or theater festivals. But Interlochen truly is a multidisciplinary environment, and so a thematic focus works very well here. Sounds like it was a huge success. Are there plans for similar thematic festivals in the future? Is there anything brewing for next summer? <laughs> there are. Um, we're really trying to look at a range of themes over the next few summers um, that work both for the students and for audiences. And so we're going to be looking at younger American artists next summer. Um, and then beyond that, we have a couple of different ideas that we're discussing at the moment. Um, but, you know, I think we're trying to look at, uh, you know, things that have impact, themes that really get people excited, they may be a little bit familiar with, but also challenge audiences a little bit to say, come on this journey, you know, try something new explore something in an in-depth way that you might not have the opportunity to. And if you're an audience member in northern Michigan in the summer, you may be visiting for a couple days, you might be able to dip in and out of a couple performances that you wouldn't have a chance to see unless you were in your home metropolitan market like Chicago or Detroit where there's not really a lot of programming like that happening in the summer. Um, so that's kind of what Interlocking in a lot of ways serves that role of giving those um, Midwestern audiences and national audiences who are here um, some of this very fine programming that you would normally only see in a city uh, during the rest of the year. Yeah, absolutely. It's a very unique environment, and you guys are able to really give people something different that they can't get anywhere else. That's really wonderful to hear. Can you maybe talk a little bit about um, some of the artist residencies you've done since you've been there? Who are some artists that you've had and, and you know, what's, what's worked? Sure. So what we always try to do for artists coming here, and probably what a lot of my colleagues obviously do at university um, uh, presentation series as well, is, you know, and other, and other schools, is really, we really try to always have artists work with our students. And during the year, our performing arts series, because we're in a boarding school environment, those artists can come and really kind of have an immersive experience here uh, with our students. And it really changes the student's experience as well, because they're in the studio with their teacher, you know, day in, day out, or in the classroom setting, but then they, we bring in a master artist and they have a kind of, kind of shakes it up a little bit and they get a different perspective from somebody in the field that they can hopefully relate to and, and, and um, aspire to. So a great example would be a residency we did with 8th Blackbird last year, the really amazing chamber ensemble from Chicago. I hesitate to even call them a chamber ensemble because they're so much more than that. They're just really wonderful artists, um, really wonderful people as well. And so they came uh, to Interlochen. One of their members, Matthew Duvall, who's a really fine percussionist, 
uh, went to Interlochen. He's an alum. And so we, I approached them to see if they would be willing to do a residency with our academy students. Those are the kids who are here from September to May. Uh, really around 20th century music and new music, I know that this is an issue for a lot of musicians who go on to university and conservatory and then into the professional world and that they need to be versed in this type of music. They need to kind of know how to perform on these gigs and workshop this music it can be incredibly difficult and really look at kind of a tool set for how to approach some of this music, which Ace Blackbird was able to uh, really, really impart on the kids. They also partnered with our music faculty. Our music faculty did a tremendous job of getting this repertoire under under the belt of a variety of kids, you know, 10 to 15 different kids. And what we try to do at Interlochen in a big way is collaborative projects every year. So we look across divisions, dance, music, theater, what can they collaborate on to come up with that is unique and really inspiring uh, project of performance for audiences. And we really want the kids to create a lot of that music and, and art themselves. So it's not just about the artist dropping in, parachuting in, telling them what to do, and then leaving. The kids have to be involved in that process. And so Ace Blackbird was here in January. They were uh, talking to the teachers and the kids remotely, and they came back again in April, and then they presented a collaborative performance of really challenging music. I mean, they were doing things like Louis Andreessen's Workers' Union and, you know, John Cage's Living Room Music, uh, just a range of really exciting music. And the kids hadn't really uh, encountered this music before. They're still at a very early stage of their development artistically. And they performed it so well. Ace Blackbird performed as well. And we really came away from this project. You know, Ace Blackbird came away saying, we can't believe how successful that was. It was such a fantastic residency. They were just kind of blown away by the talent of the kids. And I think that that's kind of speaks to Interlochen's unique environment, that it is such a unique place. The kids are at such a high level here at such a young age that they're able to pull off a really high-level performance with Ace Blackbird, uh, which not many places can do. Not many universities can do that, actually. Sure. No, that's really great to hear. Wow. You've touched on a lot of great things, Chris. Um, and in particular, I've really enjoyed hearing you talk about you know, the digital strategy at Carnegie Hall, the webcasting how you approach programming for the Summer Arts Festival, your normal fine arts season. Um, I'm thinking to wrap up the conversation then, as someone who is always looking for artists, uh, who have you been listening to lately that's really impressed you that maybe we should all check out? <laughs> this is such a tough question for programmers, right? We well, you know, I mean, it's not the end all be all. <laughs> we don't want to give it give too much away, and we also, um, you know, it, there's so many things that we're listening to and kind of looking at all the time. Um, you know, I think uh, as we were talking about earlier, because I'm in this kind of unique environment where I have to kind of dip in and out of every art form and then within music, for instance, kind of every genre, um, there, I just was in Nashville, actually. I was at a conference down there, um, and so I've been listening to a lot of kind of uh, country music, a lot of new grass, a lot of folk, and something I'm really excited about is Sarah Jaros, um, who opened for Nickel Creek uh, two summers ago for us and was just here this past summer with Garrison Keillor and Perry Home Companion. And she's based in New York. Um, she went to NEC. She's a really, really amazing uh, musician. Um, just, just one of these kind of new grass artists and uh, folk musicians who's just doing really, really good stuff. Um, and so she's an artist that I'm really excited about right now. Um, and, and sorry, that was Sarah Gross. Sarah Gross. Uh, so Sarah J A R. Yeah. So it's um, J A R O S Z. Sarah Gross. She's okay. just done a big tour with Prairie Home Companion. Um, so she's a really 
really fine musician, um, kind of has the technical training to back up just his amazing kind of raw talent, um, but also it, as she's getting older, it's kind of, uh, you know, being refined. She's a singer-songwriter, um, just really great artist and somebody that is really a joy to work with. Um, so she's somebody that I'm pretty excited about right now. Um, Chris Bowers, who's a jazz musician um, in Los Angeles. He was here this past year with uh, From the Top. We did a national broadcast at From the Top with Michael Thurber, who's an alum and great guy and great composer. Um, and Chris is a, a jazz keyboardist who is here who's really exciting artist. He had an album, his album debut came out this past year, and it's just really fantastic jazz music, some of the best new jazz that I've heard in a while. Um, so that's somebody I'm excited about. And there's just so many, Mike, it's, you know, <laughs> that's always the problem. There's so many different people. Um, we're working with a choreographer, Christopher Williams, who is uh, based in New York um, for a big project we have coming up in New York in the summer. Um, and he is a very exciting choreographer who's uh, doing some original choreographer, choreography for us uh, for a New York premiere that our orchestra is doing. And he's somebody who's worked with Peter Sellers in Europe and is really kind of on the cusp, uh, but not as well-known in America. Um, and so seeing some of his work and working with him on this particular project has been really exciting. So, you know, I'm most excited about younger artists. Um, obviously, there's icons in our field. There's people who are super established. You know, we worked with Christine Brewer, for instance, the soprano this summer. She sang Barbara's Knoxville Summer in 1915 with our youth orchestra, and that was a really special moment, and she was such a fine artist. Um, so you have those artists who are established and very well-known, but what really gets me excited is about, you know, presenting that, but also presenting younger artists who are on the cusp, who are doing really interesting things at a high level, but that maybe art audiences haven't heard about yet. Um, and I guess working in an env environment you know, that's one of the leading incubators for younger artists that feels a little bit more pronounced here. Um, so working with younger professional artists is a really exciting opportunity. So I like to look at a lot of those types of artists and think about how we can help those artists a lot, too. Definitely. Um, I, I really appreciate you naming some of these artists. We'll have to check them out. Um, well, Chris, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. I hope you enjoy that wonderful fall weather out there and um, see as much of it as possible. <laughs> we are. Thank you for having me, Mike. I really appreciate uh, the opportunity to talk about this. You bet, Chris. Take care.